if I was to distill the DNA of being successful down into one line, and and I'm, I'm actually writing about this at the moment, it's the ability to do what you have to when you don't want to. That's what it is. Greatness is the ability to do what you have to when you don't want to. All of us can do, or, or to do what you need to when you don't want to, either way you want to put it. All of us can do what we need to do when we want to do it. That's easy. If it was that easy, though, Steve, everyone would have fantastic success. The difference between the people who make it and the people who don't is the people who have the ability to do what needs to be done when they don't feel like doing it. That is the one line mantra. You can forget all the other wisdom. You can boil it down into that one line. Hello there. I hope you're doing well. It's Steve Ingham here and a very warm welcome to the Supporting Champions podcast. Now, I'm a sports and performance scientist and have supported athletes throughout my career towards the podium and have led and developed high performance teams both in sports and in business. And in this podcast, I speak to Olympic champions, Formula One drivers, top level sports coaches, researchers breaking new ground in aspects of performance. But we know that performance doesn't just exist in sport. That's why we value having people on this podcast from the military, from performing arts, including musical theatre or ballet, to name a few performance industries. In all walks of life, we can learn from the pursuit of a better way to create performance. I hope you can draw out some lessons or just reflect and draw some inspiration from these conversations so they can help you along with whatever is in front of you right now. So talking of learning from all aspects of life, today's guest should provoke some thinking about extremes. And let's face it, we're all a bit fascinated about extremes, aren't we? I mean, you're listening to a podcast right now about high performance. No doubt you're captivated by a world record, whether it's a sporty one or a Guinness world record. But what about extreme behaviours? What, what about a set of personality characteristics that are considered maybe antisocial, perhaps callous, unemotional or morally depraved? This week, I speak to Kevin Dutton, Professor of Psychology at Oxford University. Kevin specialises in psychopaths and he's written several brilliant books on the topic. For example, The Wisdom of Psychopaths, Flipnosis, the Good Psychopath's Guide to Success, and his recent book, Black and White Thinking, all of which are illuminating because they unveil a world that is, for many of us, alien, perhaps peculiar, maybe grotesque, yet actually at the same time so close, so relevant, and in some cases so familiar. Because as Kevin explains, many of the characteristics that we associate with malice, danger, and evil if dialed differently, they are definitely determinants of personal success. This was such a fascinating conversation, not least because Kevin turns his evaluation measure onto me to find out if I have any psychopathic tendencies, with quite surprising, interesting results for me, actually. So if you grab a piece of paper, you can take the test along with me. You're recording now. Yeah, right? recording. So yeah, we can we can we can chuck some of this stuff. Banner. Yeah, have a banner. It's really funny. So a few years ago, I did a VO2 max test. So I've always had very good endurance, and I did a VO2 max test, but it wasn't a running test. It was a rowing. I was did a VO2 max on an ergometer. Yeah, okay. Um, 
And it was really amazing. So this always got me thinking about the nature of performance, actually. It's just, and it's just apropos of what you were saying there. And so I had instructions. I can vaguely remember. I had instructions. I'd like head, I had a headphone on. And so I was told by a guy, mm. um, you know, right, okay, you've got to start off. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not a rower, I should say. Not a rower by any stretch of the imagination. Never been on an ergometer. Well, I have been on yeah. it, but, you know, mess about. No. Never been on it before. And he said, right, okay, so let's start. And so I had to go, I don't know what it was, like 20 strokes a minute. And then gradually I had to respond to, um, the instructions in my ears, so I go, okay, a little bit fast, a little bit fast, a little bit fast, a little fast, until in the end, it, it was an, it was like a VO2 max test on a treadmill, right? And I remember thinking to myself, so he goes to the point of exhaustion. And I remember thinking at the time, this is really bloody hard. I know VO2 max tests are hard, yeah. but this is much harder than it would have been and wasn't a true reflection of my endurance. And I thought, well, why? Why is this? And it was, if I had reached that level, I mean, I'm just guessing now, you're the expert on this. I thought to myself, now I'm a psychologist, you're the physiologist. And I thought if I'd have reached that level of tiredness and pain, as it were, on a treadmill, in my brain, I would have had a, a psychological shelf on which to park that pain in order to go to the next level. But because I'm used to it, I know where to put yeah. that pain on the shelf because I've been running all my life. But actually, because I hadn't been rowing, I didn't, I was still at the, let's say we were still at the same level of pain, but I didn't have any shelf space. I didn't have a shelf, <laughs> not unless, not, not, not the space, I didn't have a shelf to put it on. And so as a result of that, I kind of had to rely on just brute force of will to keep going. Do you know what mm. I mean? Does that make sense? About the, you know, like shelves to put pain on and, and actually how that can, you know, impact on your ultimate performance there's a well, there's a couple of things there's there's probably two or three things that spring to mind first the familiarity of it um so yeah. genuine genuinely we could get somebody in, in to do a laboratory test push them for the first time they, they sort of just discover what that peak feels like and looks like and then next time yeah. they go ah okay i can i can drive through that bit those vo2 yeah, max yeah. tests are designed to take you to max but not spend an awful lot of time there so you kind of just That's you right. feel exhausted then you could finish and it's very common yeah. for people to go oh i might have been able to push a bit harder because they they don't yeah, yeah. feel that absolute exhaustion that they might have done at the end of a race because right. they flogged themselves really hard throughout yeah 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 there's yeah. a quirk there's a couple of quirks about rowing that i think make it actually quite unique and one is that you it demands a lot of your muscles to work. So oh, yeah. when you're running, yeah, yeah. It's, gen, it's generally your legs and your shoulders. Not, not right, an awful yeah. lot yeah. else is going on. You don't use your back muscles as much or your chest muscles um, as yeah. much. Um, when you're cycling, it's, it's kind of all legs and bum. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, whereas rowing... It uses everything, chest, the chest, oh, yeah. back, shoulders, legs, arms, calves. And and so... Do you know what, Dave? Even my... When I finished that, I'm not being funny. Seriously, even my jaw <laughs> was like... No, okay. no. It was yeah. like... Oh, so, everything everything yeah. went. So yeah. this is this is the um, interesting bit. is because you've got only got a certain amount of blood. So if, you're, if it's yeah. only your quadriceps saying, right, cycling... Um, then you yeah. can just send it all there. If it's running, yeah. you can go, okay, you need a bit, you need a bit, fine. Have your yeah. bit. 
rowing, like everyone needs a bit of blood. So it's like yeah, yeah, yeah. super hungry people yeah. in a restaurant. Everyone needs serving at the same time. Oh, that's great. Yeah, and the kitchen's at full tilt. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's a great analogy, yeah. You know, the other thing I was going to say to you was um, it's really interesting on the idea of pain. So I used to run, you know, quite consistently in my 20s and 30s, and I still do. Uh, a race every year near Hereford, actually. And it's a, like a, it's an old school cross country race. I won't mention the name of it because there's only about 300 people get in it and it's always to capacity every year. And it's like, it's my secret little race I love to do every year, you know. But anyway, it's it's a really, really great, great hard. It's not a tough mudder. It's like an old school hard cross country. And Her- Hill- Hereford's hilly, isn't it? It is. Yeah. It is hilly. So it's, it's like old school it's um it's a strange race really because the very first mile you get to like a bottleneck which is a kissing gate and it's also a course that gets harder as it goes on so there are some severe hills in the in the latter stages of it and some long drags but the real so you obviously have to take your time with it you have to run yourself in if you blow up in this race at say three or four miles you have had it you are toast you're really going to suffer but at the same time you've got to <laughs> you've got to get to that kissing gate quite quickly because if you don't and you're serious about competing you're going to be in a long tailback of people going through and and you know the front guys are just going to go off and off and off and off so you've got to run the first mile quite quick to get there what with the leaders but also you've got to be able to do that kind of within your comfort zone in a sense because you don't want to blow up later on anyway long that's a, that's a long story short last when was it it wasn't it wasn't on last year because of covid the year before um, I learned I was really depressed for a week or so after this race because I got into a battle in the last mile with someone. We were quite way up the field and I got into a battle. I was caught by a guy uh, with about three quarters of a mile to go and he went past me and I hung on to him. And in the last, what would it have been, 300 metres or so, he started to go away. <laughs> and I, there was something in my mind. I was, by the way, I must say, when I finished the race, Elaine was there and I was really out of it. Actually, I could hardly remember finishing it. And um, it was, yeah, I mean, I could remember. I was in a pretty, I was gone, right? So I was physically really pretty much at the limit. But I can remember with 300 metres to go, this guy going away. So I'm saying to myself almost, it's the first time it's ever happened to me. No, I just can't. I can't. Or I can't or don't. Don't go with him. Just you, you, you've done really well here. Just let him go. And I did that and I finished. And when I, you know, the next day when I, or maybe later that day when I'd had some food and a bit of a sleep, I really reflected on that. And I thought for the first time, you're not the bloke you used to be. Do you know what I mean? And it was like, and it, I was really depressed. And then I thought, was it just me on that moment? Why am I not as tough as I used to be? What happened there? And it was just like, well, and maybe, you know, I'm 54 now. And I just thought maybe you're allowed to, maybe you're allowed to be not as tough as you used to be. Maybe that's okay. But anyway, it took me, I'm still, well, as you can see, I'm talking to you. Yeah, about it now. You're, you're looking for me to still help on my, you with it's this. Still on my chest, you know, I mean, and I'm still thinking, wow, you know, 
God, anyway, but there you go. You can't reach it. That's what's great about sport. Uh, well, sport. hang on. Professor of psychology asking me for counselling advice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, no, exactly, exactly right. But, no, but the point, yeah, well, I guess if you want any advice, give it, I'll take it. But um, but I think that's what's great about sport when people say about, oh, you know, what can sport give you? Sport is a real insight, isn't it, into who you are. It kind of, you know, if you do it properly, you know, it really allows you to to question yourself and to to come up with ultimate answers, I think. You know, that's one of the reasons, that's one of the great things I've, I've been running all my life and that's one of the reasons why I still do. Were you, you know? were you reconciling it in the moment, though, of just recognising that this person is is just a, ne- a level on from me and, yeah. and if I'm going to go with them now, it, I'm, I'm yeah. not going to be able to finish the race or I'm going to just fatigue and other yeah. people go past me? Because I yeah. think that when I, when I watch sport and... Um, because I know a lot about sport, I think that there is there is a frustration with some of the glib commentary, such as uh, it's now down to who wants it most. Yeah. Well, yeah, okay. Yeah. I've met, a, and this might be sort of coming onto your sort of specialist topic, but I've I've met a few people. I think they they really want it a lot more than everyone else. But yeah. most people, certainly when they turn up to a major competition they're giving it absolute beans. They're giving it as much as they possibly can. And generally it comes down to kind of performing under pressure, keeping things relatively stable, but that the, you get what you've put into it, the training, the preparation form is relatively stable for a lot of sports. So it, it, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think for me, I think what it was, was I could see it, it wasn't so much the, I thought this guy's on another level. I deep down, I thought deep down, I always believed I could only do. But I think what happened is almost I wouldn't say unconsciously. I don't like that word particularly, but I think kind of there was a level deep inside me that realised that I'd I'd reached a level where if I continued, the 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 gains would wouldn't be you know so what i'm going to go with this guy and perhaps beat him but i'm going to maybe do serious damage you know to not serious damage but push my body to i've got more body sympathy i think when you get older you got more bodies whereas like you would possibly throw caution to the wind in your 20s i just thought actually you know maybe i just don't want to go i don't want to take every drop out and i think that's kind of what what um, kind of got me but an interesting story actually my old mate Hugh Jones is the first Londoner to win the London Marathon as, as you know back in 82 mm. he said he, I think it was he told me this story once it's a wonderful story where he turned up uh, well he was due to run the Oxford half marathon uh, this would have been back in the late 70s I think and one of his great rivals was there a guy called Nick Rose you might have heard mm. of Nick Rose I think it was Nick Rose he was a very very good runner rich marathon runner 10k runner back in the 70s and they, anyway Nick Rose was like he was getting warmed up took his tracksuit off and all that and word got round to Nick Rose kind of about 20 minutes before the race that Hugh Jones um, couldn't make it because he had a cold. And this was relayed to Hugh by a former club runner, Ranlar Harriers, um, uh, who, who was there. We ran for Ranlar Harriers at the time. This was before my time, I hasten to add. And um, it was relayed to Hugh, this story, by a, a mutual friend of ours who's a club member, that, um, uh, you know, word, once word got round that Hugh Jones wasn't going to run, Nick Rose put his tracksuit back on and disappeared because actually Nick Rose had turned up not just to win the race, but he turned up for a fight. He turned up for the competition. 
and I love that story. Hugh loves that story. I think it was Nick Rose. Uh, Hugh loves that story because it's like it's kind of old, the old fashioned values of, right, it's not just about winning, it's about winning well and about, you know, having a good old tussle. And I, I, I think that, that that's one of my favourite old running stories. Mm. I think very simple, but I think kind of sums a certain spirit up. I love that. And I think there is a, a, an element of where, you know, a top rival can't make the competition that the competitor is genuinely disappointed that they wanted to be tested. They wanted, because, it, because you know, I suppose a lot of the sports events are pointless anyway. They're jumping about or swimming or splashing yeah. about in certain directions. You want it to have been a meaningful achievement. And so you need That's that okay. vying. Everyone loves a close race. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. It's nice. I, I loved it. And I think you're absolutely right. But going back to your earlier point about, about you know, getting the best out of yourself. And, you know, we all know people who really, really want it. And this is, this is one of the things which my research, I think, has hopefully uncovered. And, and that is that if you read any, you know, general kind of sports psychology textbook, you know, you open it up and you get the, you get the kind of general, okay, in order to succeed, you need two things. Firstly, you need talent. And second, you need hard work. Uh, and that's true. OK, so talent without hard work, you're not really going to get there. I think Steve Davis once said it's talent without hard work is an elegant way of finishing second. Um, <laughs> I think it was Steve Davis said that. And then, and then, you know, hard work, you know, without the talent. Well, there's loads and loads and loads and loads of people who've got that. So if you put the two together, that's where you get success. But, uh, you know, you just touched on it earlier. We both know people who have all the talent in the world who have a really, really, really good hard work ethic, uh, but still don't make it for various reasons. And that's where I came in and started looking at, you need a third thing. There's not two parts of jigsaw, there's three. You need the talent, yes. You need the hard work, yes. But you need to be able to produce the talent when it matters. You can have hard work, you can have talent, but if you can't produce the talent when it matters and get the best out of yourself when it actually matters, then actually the talent and the hard work doesn't mean anything at all. So that that's what I came in. I said, well, I think this is the third crucial component here. It's producing it when it actually matters. And I've spoken, this isn't just in sports, Steve. This is in all areas of life. So, you know, I a few friends in the in the entertainment business and it's like you know i'll give you examples say humor and and say um performing on stage in in a rock band as a guitarist so you know i was speaking to a friend of mine he's a, a you know well-known comedian he said you know actually you get people who you go into their local pub on a friday night and they are the life and soul of the pub they're making everybody laugh and you think how the hell aren't they a famous comedian and he said, I'll tell you now, if I was to go into my local pub on a Friday and I don't make anybody laugh, he said, I just don't. I'm not a very funny person in that particular kind of environment. He said, it's a really different skill set making a few people, few close friends laugh and going on stage and making the London Palladium laugh. He said, it's a completely different skill set. And I've heard, <clears throat> excuse me, I've heard this with musicians as well. So, you know, I, again, Friends of mine who are quite well-known guitarists, very well-known guitarists, have said, you know, actually there are the modest ones anyway, said there are way better session musicians than me. Okay, you go into any recording studio, any, you know, when, when you know, in normal times, and you've got session musicians there who are brilliant technical musicians. But when they get on a stage, they can't produce it. They're still okay, 
but their performance really dwindles. He says, whereas actually, if you were to put me and so-and-so in a studio with this guy, he would absolutely play me into the corner. He's much better. But actually on a stage, I'm better than him. So technically, he's a better guitarist, I guess, in raw, with comes to raw talent. But it matters when you're on the stage if you want to go into, you know, rock and roll. Um, and so that's really interesting. It's such as what you were saying there. It's it's a it's it's not just in sport. It's in in all kinds of performance. I think you need the talent, you need the hard work, but you need to be able to produce it when it matters. And I think that's where that's where I got really interested in the psychology of performance. Really, you know, that's that's it really for me. That's where the, that's where the action. Is. Yeah, I think. I mean, there's so much wisdom in that that the. And there's several layers and nuances, I think, that I've observed, is that you can have people who, who, when it matters most, it could mean, in one part, they deliver consistency in training, that they'll step up to the bar and they will focus on it and execute a lift in conditioning or training in the gym, for example. Um, I remember watching Carolina Clough, the heptathlete, on a training camp, yeah, yeah, And I was struck by just how she brought her A game to training. I suppose that culturing yeah. the consistency of performance. But, I, but yeah. I suppose there is equally a branch of people who are able to reproduce performance in training and they're good trainers. Um, yeah. And perhaps some of the coaches create good trainers and good training programs or notorious training program tra- programs. Yeah but they can't deliver it. Um, yeah. That when it does come to the big moments, there's a disconnect. And, and I think yeah. it's in some ways also, you know, when we're preparing people for those big moments, we, yeah. it's, it's, it's all too often people just go, they're shy away from it. Well, let's just do the training. Let's not simulate competition in it, in yeah. all its, it's intense intensity and nastiness and and the pressure external expectations let's not do that let's just let's just make kind of make it nice and that yeah. old idea of hard training easy combat easy training yeah. hard combat is is so important yeah. train hard fight easy yeah <clears throat> well two points on that actually which i think is really interesting and i think you'll you'll know more about this um as a physiologist than i do but it's kind of in the middle of our two areas of expertise i mean there are two kinds of people, roughly speaking, that when you've got, especially in sport, for instance, or anything like you're going to go out and give a public talk or, you know, any any anything like that. There's basically two kinds of people. And, and there's like, and I've seen it myself, actually. There's the kinds of person that it's actually fight or flight response. That's what it comes down to. So before you give a big performance, there are some people, and I know professional athletes like this, who actually get really tired, who get very, very lethargic. And it's like, I don't want to do that. And it's like, you know, going back in evolutionary times, hide in the corner of the cave, you know, when you've got a big challenge coming, you know, you're going to hide away in the darkness. But actually you learn as an athlete or, well, good athletes learn that actually that's your brain conning your body into, you know, actually you've, you've got a major challenge here. You've actually got to go out and perform. So one natural reaction is the flight where, you know, you get lethargic and tired. And then I've known other athletes and performers who go the opposite way, who are absolutely revved up to go on and perform. And I've often wondered whether those national, those natural, differences uh, perhaps hormonal based you'll know more about that than me has, has got something to do with it so that's the first point the second point is which i think there was i think it was steve dave no it was stephen hendry the snooker player had once said that look if you're gonna win a world and if we've got the crucible coming up world championships next month 
if you're going to win a world championship, anybody that wins a world championship has has got to have an A game, but they've got to have a B game as well. You don't win anything unless you're prepared to play with your B game as well, because you're not going to play with your A game all the time. So your B game has got to be good as well. And perhaps even your C game has got to be good as well. So it's not necessarily, I think, as you were saying, it's not necessarily about having your A game being A1 all the time. It's about having a B, a good B game and a good C game. And I think it was Stephen Hendry, might not have been, might have been Steve Davis, who said it's not how good your best is, it's how bad your worst is. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's really important as well. I love any conversation that's just got a load of awesome Steves in it. So um, Steve Redgrave used to say, on my, on my worst day, I'm going to beat everyone. Yeah, as yeah, in, yeah. We're training in that way. But so that A and B game and, and having backup plans that you know works. But it's really funny. You know, you were talking about Steve Redgrave there. And this, this brings us on to a, 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 another one of our favourite topics. And that is, you know, that everything that you actually do, and again, it's kind of related, everything that you do doesn't just send a message out to the competition. It sends a message out really importantly to yourself. That's the, that's the key thing. And whenever I talk to people in consultancy roles, in any field, like, you know, as I say, sport or entertainment, that's a key message that people don't get. They don't read that anywhere. But actually, you know, everything you do, you send a message out to other people and you send a message out more importantly to yourself. And coming back to Steve Redgrave, Steve Redgrave's favourite picture, one of his favourite pictures is a picture of Daly Thompson. It's the, fa- it's the famous picture of Daly standing, I think it was the European Championships in Stuttgart that I might have the facts wrong in, in 1988 or something. No, it would have been earlier than that, 82. 82, perhaps. I think it was, yeah. 82, it wasn't 88 because he was, it was Olympic champion by then, but um, 82. And he was standing over that, that famous picture of him winning the, the European title and standing over these all his um, uh, competitors and they were all lying down on the track, exhausted after the 1,500 metres and Daly's the only one standing. And, and Steve Redgrave said that this was a really, really important picture to him at the time because at the time... Um, he wasn't a very well-known rower. Uh, this was before he'd really started getting going. Um, and he put this picture up on the wall um, uh, wherever he was when he was training because it, it, it epitomised to him what he needed to do um, to become an all-time great or to become an Olympic gold medalist. Um, and, of course, the interesting thing there was that that message that, I mean, Daly was very kind of, you know, modest about it. And he said, oh, the only reason I wasn't lying down on the track was because there wasn't any room for me. Now, actually, (laughs) that's a nice line, but it's also a little bit of, it's symbolically a bit of a dig, actually. Uh, You know, Daly's quite capable of that. And, um, you know, it was like, you know, there's no room for me down with you, mate. I'm up here. And actually, I rather like that. But the interesting thing about that is that the message that Daly Thompson was sending out to himself there it was a message to the competitors who were lying down yeah i'm still standing as elton famously sung but it was a message to himself yes this is where you belong and that's what steve redgrave took out of that it was a message the important thing is it's a message to yourself what do you send to yourself that's more important than the message you send out to your competitors in many ways. So um, I think that's really interesting, actually, how, how performance impacts on you. And you've got that kind of that feedback, that self-feedback loop, I think. So that's interesting in the sense that um, 
the the behavior or the action is creating a feeling for yourself. So you're sort of almost, yeah. and certainly for performers, they, they need to be encouraging their confidence to almost be slightly higher than their actual abilities so that they believe in yeah. it. Um, the Absolutely, that yeah. idea of okay, I've I've got some actions that culture and, and nurture my yeah. optimum self, um, and that could be, you know, taking the chance to to parade around the warm up area in a certain way. So you're just sort of displaying to the opposition. Yeah. Um, That's right. Yeah. Yeah, these yeah. sorts of things. I know the, I know that uh, a number of sort of technological sports like cycling and rowing. They would make yeah. a bit of a, a do about hiding some of the technology, so it felt and looked special. That that, oh, yeah. that so it's not just so much for the opposition there in terms of oh look we're we're being sneaky and we've got an advantage over you, but we're sort of culturing that feeling for ourselves to say we've got an advantage that we're going to utilise. Yeah. Well, there was a great uh, there's a great story. It was Sugar Ray Leonard again. Uh, Marvin Hagler side, sadly passed away uh, earlier this month, of course. But um, so I mean, Sugar Ray Leonard, the famous fight in 1988, I think it was when when Leonard and Hagler went toe to toe in that very disputed fight that Leonard won. Um, but you know, as I say, it, it, it is disputed. But um, but Leonard said that you know he when they came together in the in in the um, middle of the ring before the fight, you know, obviously Hag very different styles. Very much, you know, Leonard there was the silky smooth boxer. Hagler was uh, actually, you know, it's very unfair to say he was a bruiser. But, I mean, he's a very skilled, talented boxer as well. But it was, you know, what I mean. It's kind of these kind of different styles. And 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 Leonard said that he was his main thing was he knew that if he could make Hagler look away, uh, if Hagler was the first to look away in the middle of the ring before the fight, Leonard said, "I knew I had it won." Uh, and sure enough, Hagler did look away uh, apparently. And um, the result is that Leonard won the fight. Now, um, that's interesting. I mean, but that's what, just what, what was going on there then? Did he just go, what's that over there? Or, you know, in a sort of what's behind yeah, you know, or, yeah, yeah, yeah. or what's that under your chin? And, and um, yeah, I don't know because I can't imagine Hagler looking away. But yeah, I mean, he apparently, he, you know, when, you know, when they stare at each other and then the referee kind of moves them apart, I guess it was like, you know, Hagler was the first to avert his gaze naturally, I think was probably what was going on. So, so is but, that, uh, so, so I'm now just starting to think about some of your work and observations about, um, I remember reading, uh, through, uh, wisdom of psychopaths where you're talking a little bit about psychopaths blinking less, which hmm. does that refer to, a level of focus or discipline there, as opposed to um, I'm about to fight and I'm looking for distractions and uh, and yeah. and other things to 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 get, grab my attention. Well, it's a bit of both, actually, Steve. And it's it's it, it, let me unpack that a little bit. So it is true that that psychopaths have this kind of when it, when you you see you know like watch films on Hollywood stereotypes of psychopaths, you've got the kind of staring eyed serial killer you know and um people that oh you know that's a hollywood stereotype well unlike actually a lot of things that hollywood does um there's actually a little bit of scientific quite a lot of scientific evidence underpinning that actually and the reason for that the reason why psychopaths have the appearance of staring eyes is because they actually tend to blink less than the rest of us okay say during the course of a minute so let's say you and i might blink i don't know i'm plucking numbers out here seven or eight times a minute psychopath will blink you know maybe half that you know a little bit you know a little bit much less than that and the reason for that is because blink rate is an index for anxiety 
So how anxious you are. So generally speaking, when you're more anxious, you blink more. Um, and a great example of that, um, which many of your listeners will probably remember, was when Bill Clinton was being interviewed by Monica Lewinsky uh, about his affair with Monica Lewinsky on live US telly years and years ago. I think his blink rate went up like something like 200 percent or something. Um, and the reason for that is because he was anxious. And the reason he was anxious was because he was telling porky pies. And so his, his blink rate went up. And so we blink more when we're anxious. And one of the things that we know about psychopaths, a really reliable finding, is that psychopaths are way less anxious than the rest of us. So the anxiety control tower in their brain, a structure called the amygdala, which is right in the center of the brain, uh, which basically controls anxiety and how we how we respond to situations emotionally, is understaffed in psychopaths, which allows them to um, react very calmly, very coolly um, in situations where the rest of us might be really, um, I think the technical term is shitting ourselves, uh, really, really panicking. And so that's why psychopaths have this kind of unblinking kind of, you get the impression, this aura of like staring us, but actually it's just because they blink less. Because if you blink less, you give the impression that you've got staring eyes and you're zoning in. Now, that's not to say, though, that psychopaths do not zone in. Psychopaths are very, very reward-driven. Um, so they, in situations, and, and again, this is why they can sometimes, people high on the psychopathic spectrum can make very good special forces soldiers, for instance. They can make very, very good sports people, etc. very, very good traders. Um, what they can do is they're very motivated by reward. So if you're in a situation where, you know, you've got, you know, it's high risk but high gain, these kinds of people often do very well because they don't perceive the risks involved. They just zone in on the reward. Um, and so that's why, you know, I would always say if I if I needed to, you know, have a penalty taken to put England through to the, uh, you know, final of the World Cup or even to win the World Cup, I pick someone who is very high on the psychopathic spectrum, someone who is single-minded and absolutely focuses on the reward rather than the potential loss and, you know, all the, all the stuff, the peripheral of the crowd baying for you, your, your blood and, and, and trying to put you off of the, the goalkeeper doing funny things, etc. Now, the reason I mentioned penalty shootouts, so that's really, really interesting. Now, I don't know the exact figures here, but it speaks very accurately to what I'm saying. So studies have been done on penalty shootouts and people say, oh, you know, oh, England missed penalties and all this kind of stuff. Now, actually, it's a little bit more complicated than that. So when you look at the science behind penalty shootouts, you see that actually if you have to score a penalty to put your side through, okay, I think the figure is you, score, you will score roughly about 90% of the time. OK, however, if you've got to score a penalty to keep your team in, OK, so let's say it's 4-3 and you've got to score to make it 4-4, otherwise you go out, people miss way more of those penalties mm. than if they have to score to, to actually put their side through. And that is because the negatives of going out if you miss weigh far more heavily on the mind than the positives of going through. So actually, if I was to pick, I will rephrase that actually, if I talk myself out of it, if I was to have a, if I was to, if there was a situation where I needed somebody to score a penalty to keep my side in, in a high, high risk situation, 
then I would pick someone high on the psychopathic spectrum to do that because they focus in on the reward rather than the loss. Mm. Whereas a lot in, in a lot of our brains, loss absolutely trumps reward. In a psychopath's brain, um, reward trumps loss. And here's a great example of, of that, of the downside of that. So um, there was research done, I think, the Second World War pilots at some point, and they were looking at, um, you know, basically fighter pilots and 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 how they how they performed, and um, they found that actually some of the most I don't think it was linked linked to psychopathy per se, but I'm I'm strongly suspecting in the back of my mind that had that personality characteristic be looked at, you would have found that we're talking about people who are particularly high on the psychopathic spectrum, given the nature of the of what we're talking about anyway. But there was, it was research done at some point, I think, looking at fighter pilots and, um, you know, number of kills, et cetera, et cetera. And what was found was that actually some of the most successful fighter pilots um, eventually perished on their way back to base because what had been found was they were absolutely ruthless and cold-blooded and relentless in aerial combat. They would absolutely go to the, you know, final mile, as it were, to kind of gun down their opposition. But what they didn't pay attention to was the fuel gauge. And so actually they would spend, they'd go to the nth degree to win the fight, but would then run out of fuel on the way back to base and come crashing down. Now that is a great example of how it's a balance and how in the you need the right mindset for the right context. So yeah, a huge plus of this kind of psychopathic mindset is the ability to zone in at reward at all costs. Mm. But a downside is that actually you take your mind off the bigger picture or you take your mind off real, real danger and you get the odds of winning all wrong. Um, and, of course, the line between a hero and a villain, Steve, as you know in sport, is often whether you win or lose, mate. It's as simple as that. Um, yeah, I love that. So the penalty shootouts is starting to get me to think about the sort of the gambling studies that they've done about um where effectively there's the same win um and loss yeah number yeah as in currency winning and losing Kahneman and Tversky's research yeah fantastic so so where effectively if you're losing at a certain rate that's going to hurt you more than if you're winning at the same proportional rate um that's right but that that chasing the reward uh reminds me of the statistic that nine out of 10 deaths on Everest are on the way down yeah, where people are yeah, pursuing yeah. the summit. I'm here to yeah. summit as, as opposed to thinking I'm here to successfully return from the summit. <laughs> you know that? <laughs> well, exactly right. Well, on a far less glamorous note, you see it with London taxi drivers. Okay. I mean, it's nothing new. But you see this, this is a brilliant cognitive bias. So the research you're talking about, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky, they did it back in the 70s called prospect theory, right. um, which is, which is, I think, what you're referring to, for which um, Daniel Kahneman won a Nobel Prize for economics. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what is really interesting, if you go to any taxi driver and you jump in a black cab or any cab for that matter, you jump in a black cab and you say, how's it going? You get into a chat with a taxi driver and they say, uh, oh, it's, um, it's dead today, mate. You know, nothing happening. But, uh, you know, I've got to pay the rent. I've got to keep going. Got to keep going. 
Um, you know, nothing happening, but I'll keep going. And then you say to, you jump in a cab another day and you say, how's it going, mate? Oh, it's going fantastically well. It's going so well, I'm going to kind of call it a day early and I'm going to go home, home and have a few beers in the garden. Absolutely illogical on both counts. So if nothing's happening, why keep going, first of all? And if everything's going brilliantly well, why stop? If you follow that model, you are absolutely setting yourself up for failure. The logical thing to do is if nothing's happening, is to go home and have a few beers in the garden. The logical thing to do if everything is going brilliantly is, well, make hay while the sun shines and keep going. If you want to maximise your profit, you keep going when it's going well and you give up when it's going badly. But actually, I, I actually like jovially refer to this as the taxi driver bias. And it's exactly true. When I when I go in cabs in London, I point this out and they all laugh, you know, well, most of them anyway, you know, if it's going well, um, you know, they all laugh and they say, well, yeah, actually, that is true, mate. And it, it is actually when you think about it, but the way our brains work, loss weighs more heavily on our minds than reward. Um, and so that's that's how it works. So, yeah, not not as glamorous as the Everest story. No, but, um, I, but then I can I can see the sense of it's better to avoid being lunch than just you know, being hungry, I suppose, for a day in that in that regard of, of chasing the reward. Absolutely. And one of the things which I do sometimes when I do corporate workshops is a very practical demonstration of this involving, a, you know, you might have you might have even seen me do this. I don't know, but you do it with a plank of wood. So if you get a, like a, a plank of, of wood, which is, you know, a plank of four by two or something, it's a bit longer. And you say you put it on the ground and you say to someone, I just want, you know, maybe it's two foot wide. And you just say, I want you to walk, um, you know, six foot across this plank of wood on the ground. Uh, they do it no problem. Um, if you hoist it ten feet up in the in 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 the in the air with no safety net, and then you say, "I want you to do it now," all of a sudden people can't do it now, or they're very reluctant to do it. And if you hoist it hundred foot up in the air, hardly anyone would do it. Now the reason for that is very very simple. I mean, it's it's exactly the same piece of wood. Nothing has changed with that piece of wood. It's still you know two foot wide and six foot long, or whatever. What's happened is it's gone up. And so all of a sudden, if you fall off, the consequences are far worse. So what's happening is all of a sudden the situation, the context has changed your attention. It's changed where you're directing your attention. You are no longer concentrating on the task of putting one foot in front of the other. What you are now concentrating on is what's either side. You're concentrating on the drop. Whereas if you concentrate just on the task, if you can, if you have the discipline to just literally look at one foot in front of the other, you're going to be fine. But very, very few people can do that. Now, I'm not criticizing anyone. That's totally understandable. But when you put something graphically like that to people, you say, well, you know, actually what they say, well, what's that got to do with everyday life? Well, it's got everything to do with everyday life because as soon as the stakes start to get higher, um, as soon as you've got something to lose, and this brings us back to our early earlier chat about, you know, the ability, talent, hard work, but the ability to produce it when it matters, it's exactly the same as the block of the, the plank of wood. Okay, anybody can walk along it when it's on the ground, but the ability to do it when it's fifty foot up and still concentrate, put one foot in front of the other, and not looking either side, that's when it when it really matters. So I think I think you're absolutely right. So is that? Yeah. Um, t- <laughs> I'm interested that's leading me to kind of thinking about uh, dissociation 
And in yeah. sports performance, you when you get to know somebody and there's a judgment of of somebody's capability to win uh, and be a champion, yeah. there's a sense of ah they don't overthink it, and Absolutely. and that's an interesting concept where you you need people to be colder or have a switch, and yeah. and to be able to just simply. I'm not talking about that flow state, that that sort of tunnel vision. I'm talking about just I'm not going to worry about anything else. I'm just going to do yeah. this. Um, yeah. Where where does that kind of fit into the the psychopathy equation? Yeah, psychopaths are very very good at that. Very good at compartmentalizing. So they 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 get that kind of tunnel vision. So that's exactly what you you know you you have a tunnel vision. Nothing else matters it's almost like i use this analogy of like thinking like a laser beam and thinking like a torch so talk you know if you think like a torch like most of us do out you know your beams go like far and wide like that but what you've got to do in, in a situation where it really matters is absolutely think like a laser beam rather than a torch and psychopaths are, are very very good at doing that and you know one of my i'm not saying he was a psychopath but he's now dead one of my favorite stories is about um the uh, the tycoon kerry packer and I think I wrote this in Wisdom of Psychopaths, I'm not sure. But um, Kerry Packer was a multi, one of, um, I think it was Australia's, one of the world's richest men. And he was um, he was in a, a casino in Las Vegas. I mean, Kerry Packer was worth billions and billions. And he was in a casino in Las Vegas um, playing Baccarat, I think it was. And there was a rich oil, uh, um, a Texan oil uh, tycoon on another table, one table down. And this guy was a little bit, you know, fed up that um, Kerry Packer was getting all the action and all the attention. Um, and he turned around and said, listen, he said, I'm a big player too, you know, and there was loads of people around. I'm a big player too. I'm worth $100 million. And Kerry Packer, with this kind of wry, shy smile that he was famous for, just turned around to him and said, I'll tell you what, I'll toss you for it. And it was like the Texan guy just shut up. Uh, and just shut up completely. Um, and I think that's one of my favourite stories about performing under pressure. <laughs> you know, okay, I'm the big show. Okay, well, how big are you then? I'll toss you for it. You know, so it was, it was, it was a real put down. But you know, actually, that's that kind of went, and and of course, you know, it was slightly unfair because Kerry Packer could afford it way more. I think it's <laughs> deliberately putting the guy down. But actually. That ability to, you know, just switch off and say, okay, let's um let's cut to the quick here. I, I really, I really kind of like that. But but psychopaths, yeah, absolutely they zone in. And one one is it's really important, Steve, that that your listeners get don't think that, you know, a lot of the media surrounding my work is like Dutton and, and when I've worked with Andy McNabb as well, Dutton and McNabb are trying to turn the nation and the world into psychopaths. We're not trying to do that at all. All of the wisdom of psychopaths and the theory that started that book was basically that, you know, actually up until then, everybody thought the psychopaths were bad. Um, you know, they were the serial killers, stereotypes, the rapists, the suicide bombers, all, you know, whatever. And I was, you know, through people that I was working with at the time of studying special forces soldiers, studying people in top sport and all this, I started seeing precisely the same kinds of characteristics in these people. 
um, as you see in your, you know, your, your, your supermax prisons and your high security units. And so I thought, well, if you look at these psychopathic characteristics, such as you've got ruthlessness, you've got fearlessness, you've got mental toughness, you've got self-confidence, you've got coolness under pressure, you've got emotional detachment, these kinds of things. And if you think about them as being the dials on a studio mixing desk, that's the key central metaphor here that you can twiddle up and down in various combinations. Uh, you arrive at two conclusions. And the first is that there is no one size fits all objectively correct setting at which these dials may be positioned, but it will invariably depend on the context, upon the particular set of circumstances you might happen to find yourself in. And the second conclusion which you can draw is that um, there are going to be certain jobs or professions which by their very nature are going to demand that some of these mixing desk styles are turned up just a little bit higher than average in one what I call some precision engineered psychopathy, okay? So give an example. Imagine you've got the skill set to be a top surgeon, but you lack the ability to, um, I don't know, emotionally disengage <clears throat> from the person you're operating on. You're not going to be a great surgeon, okay? As simple as that. Imagine you've got the... Um, the ability to be a top lawyer, top QC, top barrister, but you lack the that almost pathological self-confidence to be the centre of attention in the middle of a packed courtroom. Again, it's not going to work. Business. Imagine you've got the strategic and financial smarts to be a top business person, but you lack, you know, the ruthlessness to fire someone if they're underperforming or the coolness out of, under pressure to ride out a storm or, 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 the, or the gut take a calculated risk when appropriate. Now, those characteristics there that I've just outlined for you, you've got ruthlessness, fearlessness, self-confidence, coolness under pressure, emotional detachment. They comprise five core characteristics of the psychopathic personality. Now, within those particular contexts that I've just outlined, I certainly wouldn't say that they were dysfunctional. Now, 10 years ago when I made this argument with Wisdom of Psychopaths, it all kicked off, as you know. Uh, the book became very, very controversial. Nowadays, I think, you know, be, being respectful to, to my peers, I think most people would agree that I've won the argument. Um, and you can see it with, with you know, first of all, you know, people like surgeons I've worked with, people like special forces soldiers I've worked with, people like business people I've worked with, top sports people, they all get it, actually. They all, you know, to them it was never new. To them, it was, well, yeah, of course, you need these things. But it was to the general public that I think it became quite a, a quite a shock because psychopaths to them were serial killers and, and you know, Hannibal Lecter and, and what have you, and, and Norman Bates in Psycho. These are psychos. Um, and it's really interesting. I think that, you know, the, the key here is the mixing their styles. These, com these, these characteristics are good if they are used in the right context, in the right combinations, in the right levels and with the right intentions. And the, the, the example I was giving sports is someone like Roger Federer. So Roger Federer is one of the nicest guys you could ever wish to meet, right, when he's off court. <laughs> when he's on centre court in Wimbledon or when he's at Roland Garros or Flushing Meadow, um, he is one of the most ruthless and predatory players ever to walk onto a tennis court, okay? I mean, in the early days, he was quite <clears throat> well known for, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, if you look at his stats, he would often lose the first set as he was literally deconstructing his opponent's game in, in, in his mind, it, almost like a cat and a mouse situation, like a predatory situation. Once he'd, work, work, once he'd worked out the weaknesses, then he would win 3-1. But sometimes, you know, he wouldn't win the first set. You know, it'd be like, mm, OK, let's see what we are. Oh, there's a weakness, there's a weakness, there's a weakness, bang. Now, actually, it's really interesting. Psychopaths, um, psych the bad psychopaths, psychopathic killers, 
are very well known for their ability to zone in on psychological weakness, actually. They they almost have a sixth sense about vulnerability, which enables them to choose their victims and, and to choose victims which are going to pose them the least problems. But actually, if you think about, say, say psych- psychopathic characteristics in sport, and as I've given an example, Roger Federer, Roger Federer would have absolutely no compunction whatsoever about totally humiliating opponent on centre court at Wimbledon, beating them 6-0, 6-0, 6-0, if he could, um, if that's what it took to win an, uh, a Wimbledon title. Um, and I've never known any top sports person that doesn't have that killer instinct. Now, were Roger Federer to behave like that um, in everyday life, as opposed to on centre court, he'd soon find himself in a very different kind of court, right? But he doesn't. He's able to do it in the right context and with the right intention. When you start getting into problems with psychopathic characteristics, when you start getting people who are bad psychopaths, the kinds of people you find in in, in prison and high security units, hospitals and that, is when they can't turn, those dials are all turned up to max and they're stuck there and they can't vary them according to context. So, you know, in terms of sport, being ruthless and fearless and absolutely, you know, having that killer instinct is totally accepted and appropriate. Um, but in everyday life, certain situations, it isn't. Now, it's really interesting with sport because when you say that to people, people say, I've made this argument before. People say, yeah, but sports, it's not real life, though, is it? You know, well, of course it's real life. You know, you're, you are dashing someone's. If, if I'm playing you and Centre Gordon with or we're having a world title fight in Caesars Palace and you, you know, beat the hell out of me in four rounds and I've trained for many years or or take the Olympics coming up, you know, athletes and you've trained them, you know, people train for four years, sometimes much longer and all their hopes rest on one event or in in Jess's event, you know, seven events, you know, whatever. I don't care about that. I'm there to win the same thing as you are. So, you know, I can't, I can't, be empathic to you about that. So when people say it's not real life, it's absolutely real life. It's just as real life as, say, business. But kind of we we don't have problems with it <clears throat> in kind of sport. We, we accept that people have a killer instinct. We, we accept that that is what is needed to be an Olympic champion or a world champion. But actually, we can't, we're a little bit more squeamish about it when it kind of when we talk about business and the big guy squashing the small guy. Oh, we don't really. Did he really have to do that? Well, what's the difference? You know, I mean, that, that's the kind of point which I, which I kind of, um, which I kind of make. Yeah. Oh, there's tons in there, and I'm not quite, yeah, I'm not quite that. sure which way to go now. But um, so, so I, I can I t- I touch on a few things. Yeah, yeah. Um, I remember reading your book, and th- and when I got it, I just, I just thought. There's one, there's one particular sentence that made me go, I can see why an evil psychopath um, would, would need that quality. I don't think I've got that. I need a little bit more of that. <laughs> yeah. So actually, I was yeah, looking yeah. at the quality saying, I get bothered by the opposite of that. Um, and, and that was not giving a damn. And so yeah. the, that sense of... Um, worrying too much about the consequences of a decision or something that I yeah. said or the initiative that I've put in place. And I'm, I'm second, triple guessing what the thoughts of other people were, which yeah, inhibited yeah. me. And I've tried to, 
I've tried to reframe that in terms of, say, um, you know, thinking just about the circle of people that I genuinely care about. I've thought, you know, one of my mantras is about, um, you know, avoid any criticism by do nothing, be nothing, say nothing, you know, that you won't actually get anything done. So I'm quite action oriented, but I've also got that, that connection with other people. Um, so from selfish point of view, um, how can I culture a bit more of that where, because for a CEO who's worrying about the consequences of everybody, of every decision they ever make, they would, they would, you know, get into paralysis. They wouldn't be able to do anything. Absolutely. Well, do you know what? One of the things, we, well, in, actually, what we can do, Steve, before we go, is if you want to do it, mm. I can give you a little questionnaire. We can do it live on the go podcast. On We're going to see. Well, I'll have to go and get it in a minute, but we can see. It will take about two minutes. We'll see where, exactly where you are. <laughs> well, hang on. Your listeners can do it as well if they want, but if you want to do that, we can do when it. I was, when I was reading up, uh, just, just getting my notes together for, before we chatted, um, I looked at this article um, and it was in relation to Channel 4's Psychopath Night. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And you surveyed ne- what, nearly a million people, nearly a million viewers. Oh, no, over now, Steve, it's over three and a half million now. It's over three and a half million. Yeah, oh, that's so that was just at the time. So, but I was just thrown by one particular line. Um, Go <laughs> I got, it got my attention and then I read on yeah. and then it, then it got me a bit concerned. So those yeah. with the least psychopathic traits preferred cats or kittens. Oh, I don't like cats. So there we go. Oh, right. That got my attention. Now, second, right. secondly, um, uh, the most psychopathic individuals preferred pet fish. I kept up to seven tropical aquariums at, uh, from the age of 12. And I worked in an aquarium shop and ran the marine section. So I, now I'm like, well, okay, what's I've going on here? My, I've always had my doubts about <laughs> you. What's the mate? pet fish that. connection? What's going I on there? It was, a, it was a Channel 4 collecting all the data, actually, to analyse it properly. Yeah, Channel 4, now I think it was musical tastes as well and newspaper preferences and, and all that kind of stuff. But but to come back to what you said, well, I'm going to go and get that test in a I little minute. We'll, so you, you, and your, you and your listeners can do it and we'll do it live. Let me come back to like what you need to do, because this is really interesting, you know, how you can avoid that paralysis. And it comes on to what you talked about earlier about overthinking. And and it's it's really interesting. My one of the if I was to if I was to distill, so all the people that I've met who've been successful, if I was to s- distill the DNA of being successful down into one line, and and I'm I'm actually writing about this at the moment, it's the ability to do what you have to when you don't want to. That's what it is. Greatness is the ability to do what you have to when you don't want to. All of us can do. Or, or to do what you need to when you don't want to, either way you want to put it. All of us can do what we need to do when we want to do it. That's easy. If it was that easy, though, Steve, everyone would have fantastic success. The difference between the people who make it and the people who don't is the people who have the ability to do what needs to be done when they don't feel like doing it. That is the one line mantra. You can forget all the other wisdom. You can boil it down into that one line. The ability to do what you need to when you don't want to. That's what it comes down to. And there's a wonderful little um, set of experiments which were done a few years ago. I can't remember when or when it was done, but I loved it. And it was done by a group of psychologists who wanted to know if you go abroad on holiday, right? You know, you go to a hot country, you go to the sea, you go to a swimming pool. There are two kinds of people in the world, right? 
there's the people who will uh, get their swimming costumes on or get their trunks on and they will jump straight into the pool, right? You know where I'm going with this. Jump straight in and it feels freezing cold, but it's all out there. They've got it all, all the pain over in one go. You've then got another group of people who take ages to get in, right? You see them going into the <laughs> sea, they go up to their knees, they go up to their ankle, oh, God, and then gradually, 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 and then their partner splashes them and all that, and they hate it. Eventually, they go in after 10 minutes. Or you can see them inching down the stairs into the swimming pool. So you've got your jumpers and you've got your splashes. You've got two kinds of people in the world. So a few years ago, I can't remember where, where or when it was, group of researchers wanted to know, well, who, who experienced the most pain out of these? Was it the jumpers or was it the splashes? And the result, as you probably will guess, and as your listeners will guess, it was the splashes. So they aggregate the pain and it actually becomes way worse than the just getting it all over in one go. Not only not only in terms of aggregation of real pain, but also the imaginary pain, because you're constantly imagining how oh, it's going to be much worse, much worse, worse. And you've got that to deal with on top of just getting it over. With. So that's the first thing. They also did experiments which looked at exactly the same thing about, you know, if you're taking off a plaster. Right. OK. Exactly the same principle. Do you inch it off? Would you just take it off like that? Exactly the same found, you know, if you just take it off, you experience less pain overall than if you just uh, if you start inching it off. Now, what's that got to do with everyday life? Well, come back to our what I was saying to you, the, my, you know, the, the mantra which I've distilled, you know, the ability to do what you need to when you don't feel like it, when you don't have to. Um, imagine that, you know, you've got something bad that you've got to do, something you've been putting off doing. You've got, I don't know, you've got to pick up the phone and fire someone or you've got to tell someone they're not on the team or you've got to do something that, you know, you don't want to do, you are putting something off, right? What do we tend to do? What do most of us tend to do in that situation? We tend to psychologically splash. We put it off, don't we? We put the kettle on, we go out for a walk, we go out for a run, we get the hoover out, we do anything apart from actually get on and jump in and do it. So if you want to get more efficient, if you want to be more successful, if you want to cultivate, you know, great being, being more assertive, You've got to what I call, and this is what psychopaths are brilliant at, you've got to decouple emotion from behavior. And you've got to ask yourself, since when did I need to feel like doing something in order to do it? Actually, that's a huge illusion. You do not need to feel like doing something in order to do it. If that was the case, most of us never get out of bed in the morning, right? Not, you know, Very few people feel like getting out of bed in the morning, but we get out because we have to. You don't feel like doing it. You get out. So next time you're faced, pretty practical advice for, for your listeners, next time you're faced with something that you don't want to do, just imagine, right, that's the swimming pool in front of you. That's the sea in front of you. Am I going to take ages to jump into this bloody thing or am I just going to, 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 to tiptoe into this thing or am I just going to jump straight in? Let's jump straight in. The power of metaphor in helping you do things is really important. There's been a lot of work done on metaphor in sport. Um so using that metaphor, whatever metaphor works for you, to say decouple emotion from behavior, okay, just get in and do it, because actually that's a great way of being way more assertive. Don't psycholo- Don't become a psychological splasher. Become a psychological jumper in it. And, and metaphors are really important. I was working, I won't, won't give any names, but I was working with um, a, 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 a British um, middle distance runner, actually, um, and one of the problems, and you you would have dealt with this many times, one of the problems with elite athletes is they hate to admit that they're injured to their coaches. So they will train through injuries. And uh, this particular person was very, very talented. And in fact, their talent has been in the news quite recently, actually. They're really coming into their own at the moment, peaking at the right time. 
and um, it was really interesting that this particular person had had a had a, um, a tendency to train through injury, and it would just become worse and worse and worse. And in the end, they'd they'd be out for you know months, few months. And they just wouldn't, you know, like a lot of athletes, you know, especially with champions coming up, they wouldn't admit that, you know, they keep going. And so lots of attempts had been made to try to get this athlete to think in a different way uh, and had failed. And I found out that they were into, um, you know, particular kind of, uh, well, you know, motor racing kind of thing. I said, look, I said, every person on the track at some point in a Formula One race, for instance, is going to have to pull into the pit lane to get the tyres changed, right? If you don't do that, the car's going to blow up and you're going to be out of the race and you won't win anything. So given the fact that everyone is going to have to pull in at some stage, in other words, any athlete at some given the law of average is going to get injured, right? You've got to pull over as soon as you start feeling like that. You've got to pull into the pits, get those tyres changed, there's your metaphor, and get yourself sorted out so you can join the race and you're having a chance of winning it. If you wait for those tyres to blow or some other malfunction without getting it fixed early on, you're going to be out of the race and you're going to win nothing. As soon as I put that metaphor to this person, all of a sudden things started working because they saw it in terms of it made it way more real for them. Yeah, this is this is logical and this is what happened. So the power of metaphor mm. is also very important as well. And I'm sure you I'm sure you've dealt with that many, many times yourself. But, well, uh, well, when you're talking about jumping in versus the splashes, I think um, one of the examples that that comes to my mind of, of just thinking as much as anything, I want to do this really well, is is giving yeah. people the bad news when it comes to uh, appointing them. Yeah. And yeah. You know, it's, it's a little bit as though somebody's got to issue the news that you didn't win the race. And, yeah. Yeah. and yeah, so yeah. Um, having seen it done in a, in a way that, that actually aggregates the pain, it, it, they edge into the sea. Uh, um, yeah. Thanks for the thanks for coming to the interview. You did really well. We love you. It wasn't me. It was you. Uh, that sort of that kind of dancing around it, which means that people are like, what? Um, have I got it or not? You know, I, I, yeah. I've been thinking about this for weeks now, and so I would have a specific script that would be, "Hello, right? Um, are you free to speak now? Okay, straight to the point. You have not." got the the job and it would be very clinical in the sense yeah. that there we are absolutely. that is it and yeah absolutely yeah. and that's just got me thinking about their needs uh as much as my my needs to give clarity within that moment yeah. um but that's starting to get me and i don't know why i'm going this way but but thinking about the contents of a team and that there will be people that disrupt. There'll be people that are rogue, that are high value to a team, perhaps because of their intellectual horsepower, um, their particular yeah. insight or creativity, but they disrupt aspects of the team. And they, they, they might disrupt, it, would, might, it might appear to be malicious intent behind it. It might appear yeah. to be that they're doing it to drag the team down, that that yeah. is that is I don't know whether they're psychopaths. I've had my questions over the years, but it's certainly antisocial. Um, yeah. What's your thoughts on ter- in terms of uh, within a team or leading a team about manage managing some people who are rogue? 
Yeah. Well, two well, a number of points actually, see, to come back to your the first point about mantras. Mantras are really important, actually. So, especially in sport, but in everyday life as well. So I've actually been collecting mantras over the years because mantras are really, really important. And so one of the things in terms of um in terms of competition in sport is self-talk. So the kind of self-talk, and you'll know about this, the kind of self-talk that an athlete has or anybody has, doesn't have to be in sport in perform, any kind of performance or in everyday life in their jobs, you know. Um, the kind of self-talk that you have is really, really important. And so especially in sports, say, for instance, when you're in the heat of competition and you don't have time to reflect comprehensively on kind of what's happening, you need small quick phrases um which you can just rely on um it could be something as simple as as you know um clear clear thinking think clearly um guts to die was one of the athletes i was working with guts to die you know when when be relentless was another one so just these simple words that you can you can have in your mind to get to get you through which is to stop your thoughts racing because obviously that's taking up energy as well so having a simple kind of mantra and that's a good exercise for the listeners to do you know work out what is your value what mantras work for you have no more than three words it's got to be in three words so something that you can have in your mind that when the shit hits the fan and when the stakes get really high whatever they whatever they are you can rely on those so that's the first thing now it's really interesting. One of the mantras which um, a performer had, uh, especially in, in because in showbiz, you, you get inundated with requests, is yes to less. OK, yes to less. And I love this because it comes back to what you were talking about, about, you know, delivering bad news. And a lot of people uh, get up, get very, very stressed out. One of the biggest sources of stress is when people have to say no. Um, and so many people find it very hard to say no to other people. Um, and this is really interesting. And Steve Jobs actually was very famous when he was obviously alive and when he was working for Apple. He said that, you know, in order to be really successful, you have to say no way more times than you have to say less. Uh, yes. Um, and he actually had like I, I think he had members uh, work, people work for him um, actually having a yes, no log. Um, and he would check it every now and again, randomly, to see how many no's have you said and what's the ratio compared to how many yeses. Um, and this is really, really interesting. Yes to less is a great mantra to have. And one of the things which actually Andy McNabb and I do this at times, this was Andy's idea, actually, not mine, you know, very, very shrewd this. You know, when when you dig down into why people are frightened of saying no, you can actually frame it as a kind of inverted narcissism. Because if I was to say to you, why are you so frightened, Steve, of saying no to so-and-so? And, you know, you say, well, I don't know. Actually, what it boils down to is actually your, your, you, how you think of they, that they think of you is like a very inflated opinion. So if you say no to so-and-so, you're thinking in your mind, they're going to be devastated. They're going to be so disappointed. What that's doing is in your mind, you're elevating your importance to them, probably in a way that's way out of proportion to what it actually is. Actually, you might not be important to them at all. And actually, it might not affect them at all. Oh, Steve said no. Okay, fair enough. But in your mind... It's really important. I don't disappoint them. Well, where did you get that from? Then? Or that so if you're you can... if you're saying yes all the time, is that effectively you're responding 
to the need for attention in that in that same yeah, regard. Yeah, okay, yeah. Or, or the need for approval, or the need for validation, or whatever. So actually, when you frame it to people in in a, in a in a judicious way, as actually you know this could be a kind of a closet or an inverted narcissism. You just need to get over yourself. Actually, people think, hang on a minute. That's not what I'm. Well, hang on a minute. Maybe it is. Maybe I am elevating my perform my my importance in the eyes of other people. And so, actually, when you when people realise that, all of a sudden they think, well, yeah, maybe it is all right to disappoint people every now and again. So anyway, coming back to I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to pen an email this afternoon, which is no, I'm sorry, I have to decline that opportunity. Um, I'm working on trying to lower the amount I rate myself. <laughs> That's right. I'm trying to. Uh, yeah, I'm working. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, I'm. 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 I need to challenge how yeah. um, in your eyes. Yeah, exactly right. It's really interesting. People often say, you know, what happens if you got, you know, psychopaths. Coming back to your other point, psychopaths are, you know, notoriously not team players. Um, well, first of all, let me say this: that if you've got someone who's who's disruptive in a team, and we've all been in teams like that, um, it's really interesting because. They're not necessarily psychopaths, actually. Um, and, and you hear this. This is one of the criticisms that I had with wisdom of psychopaths, people saying, oh, you know, like psychopaths, you know, they how can you say psychopaths are good? You know, they cause, you know, they do this, they do this, they do this. And actually, you talk to any divorce lawyer, Steve, and they will tell you that psychopaths do not have the monopoly on pain and trouble. That's the rest of us. OK, <laughs> normal people are capable of visiting horrendous pain on other people, okay? So, you know, people say, you know, people have this idea, we are good, psychopaths are bad. Actually, 99% of us can be absolute shit. Is that is that an example from divorce lawyers where effectively somebody is pitting against another person and inflicting... Yeah, okay, I see. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, as, it, it was kind of tongue-in-cheek. But as I was saying, you ask any divorce lawyer and they will tell you how nasty everyday people can be to each other, their loved ones, when things go wrong. So psychopaths do not have a monopoly on pain. That's... That's the first thing. So if you've got someone who's disruptive in a team, they, they might just be a dickhead <laughs> rather than a psychopath. And, you know, like the, the All Blacks mantra, no dickheads, um, you know, it's very, very important. Um, but it's really interesting. So people often say, you know, psychopaths aren't team players, blah, blah, blah. That's actually not strictly true. If you've got someone, so remember psychopaths are, ruthless self-interest machines they're in it for themselves right that is that is very true they're not necessarily team players in that extent but a shrewd manager if you've got someone who is like that a shrewd manager is what they will do is they will craft the interests of the individual so that it depends on the performance of the team if you can get that alchemy right and you can eradicate the dissociation between individual and team. And you can produce a kind of a synergy where actually your individual outcome is dependent on the outcome of the team. What you then find is that people who are higher on the psychopathic spectrum outperform people who are generally considered more cooperatively minded because they're zoning in on that self-interest. And because as we talked right at the beginning of this, right at the outset, psychopaths are actually really, really reward driven. They're in it for themselves. So if you can say, okay, your self-interest, your fate, your outcome 
is solely dependent on the outcome of the team, that's when you get that laser-like vision. That's when you get these people really on site. So in that sense of what could be manipulative behaviour um, on yeah. uh, in one category could be turned to facilitative, uh, nurturing Absolutely. and developing the team and spotting spotting those vulnerabilities and doing what they can to to sort of plaster right. on them, help them, heal them. Um, yeah. How how would a manager create that alchemy? What would be your top tips? Well, I mean, first of all, the absolute, you know, it's really interesting. One of my big heroes, and I count him as, as a friend of mine, I'm very fortunate, is, is the Burnley manager, Sean Dyche. Um, and Sean Dyche is one of the, he's a psychological genius. I have no hesitation in saying that. Um, he is a brilliant, brilliant man manager. And a brilliant psychologist as well. Um, no formal training in psychology, but what Steve doesn't know about managing teams um, isn't worth saying. But one of the things, one of the things I always remember Steve telling me Sean. Is, is that, you know, what you need as a manager um, is you need to, it, the biggest, the biggest kind of impediment to elite team performance is ego. That's where it all goes wrong. Ego, obviously everyone's going to have an ego and that's going to be important in actually directing you to to success. But actually you've got to control egos and you've got to make people, there's there's also the idea of psychological safety. So, you know, you've got to have people operating in an environment where people feel safe to criticise and and, and also feel safe to be criticised as well. So if you've got a situation, if you've got a, you know, a dressing room or a team like that where actually people are made to look stupid or people or there's, you know, cliques develop or there's hostility, that's a real problem in terms of team performance, as is ego. So what you need to do, you need to create a kind of a team environment where it's there is psychological safety, where you've got the egos under control. And that is just as key for the managers and the coaches as it is for the staff. Because if you've got a manager with an ego that gets involved in a kind of a battle with a player, actually that prevents them from taking the right action. It then becomes a personal battle. So you've got to be able to, you've got to be able to understand what's going on. And actually, and and then, you know, and then it's communication as well. There's no, there's no magic bullet, Steve. You know, here's a psychological technique. The technique is to get the person to realize that actually their success mm. is dependent on the success of their teammates. I mean, look at someone, and, you know, this is something, you know, in terms of, say, football, for instance, Claudio Ranieri with Leicester in 2016. He didn't have a great group of players there, Ranieri, but what he did was he radicalised them. He He got them all absolutely aligned like a laser beam. And, you know, there were players there who were cast off by other clubs. They were told by other clubs, you're not going to make it. Um, and he basically said, okay, here's your chance. And gradually, with the results, gradually people started playing for each other. Yeah. They started playing. I started playing for you. You started playing for me because we got to know each other. We got to know each other on a personal level. We were all in it together. And because we weren't that good, our fate depended on each other or depended on that team going forward. Now, it is rare to get a situation like Leicester, but actually that's that's the gold standard of what you're talking about here. You've got to get rid of the egos. You've got to get into a situation where there are conditions of psychological safety. 
You've got to get those conditions right where everyone's fate genuinely depends on the team. And I really want to play for you. I want to play for you, Steve. Not for me, not for that. Actually, we're all in it together. That's that kind of magical kind of sweet spot where you get that kind of performance. But, you know, it's rare, but you can you can approximate to it. Mm. But the, the, the bottom line is if you've got someone who is you know, narcissistic or, or something like in a destructive way, who are basically, you know, using the team to promote themselves rather than using themselves to promote the team. That's the way you've got to do it. You've got to be able to take the, again, take the emotion out of the equation, to take the ego out of the equation and say, okay, this is a practice, this, this is a this is a problem that needs a practical, pragmatic solution. How do we do that? Well, we we try it as much as possible to impress upon the person that their individual outcome, their individual fate depends on the fate of the team. Mm. Um, and so that that's that's the general advice that I would give. But, you know, that the, the advice can only be general. You know, as I say, then it again gets more nuanced depending on, you know, situations and, and, and the particular, you know, setups in, in various teams and clubs and that. Yeah, I can imagine that that your research into psychopathy would just just illuminate that subject. But we all experience that where we go into teams and we're just thinking about our own needs. And particularly yeah. if we're under threat, we we get into that sense of self protection, uh, yeah. and that flip that we all experience from great leaders, from great coaches, for example, for a, a sports player. Uh, where you end up going, I would do anything for the boss. I would do anything for each other. And it feels like a siege mentality where we're pulling tight. And that's so intoxicating. It 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 is. And and that's one of those things which Sean Dyche, he's one of those managers that's able to do that. Um, you know, I would do anything for Sean. I, I think he's, 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 you know, he's just so easy. He's one of those guys that, you know, commands loyalty. It's Again, it's a whole different subject altogether, but it's about trust. I know that's a much used word, but it's about authenticity as well. There's something very authentic about Sean. Um, and, and you know, that's that's what he's, you know, you know, you know, as well as I do, if you've got a coach or a manager, you know, and is there any way inauthentic, athletes and 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 they sense it they know it they can absolutely see through the bullshit very very quickly uh and so that you know absolutely right you know you you've got people who are very authentic like that you you get them in the military as well and and you know there's i always use an analogy you know steve when i talk about that and especially teams and it works with individual forms as well i can't remember the name of the artist mate but there was an artist back in the i think it was the 50s or the 60s there was a sculpture sculptor and this sculptor had crafted a fantastic statue of a horse's head out of a block of stone and he's being interviewed on the bbc or something like that and the arts correspondent had said um look this is such it was much fated by the art establishment this this um sculpture and the correspondent said to him you know what this is so fantastic i just would have no idea where to start where do you start and he thought about it for a moment and he gave a fantastic answer. And the answer was, well, it's very simple, actually. You get a hammer and you get a chisel and you get your block of stone and basically you chisel away anything that doesn't look like a horse. <laughs> um, and it's really funny, really funny, right? But there's profound wisdom in it, profound wisdom in his answer. And that is, it's very easy to know what we don't want in a top performance. 
and you never get it 100%. It's always an approximation. But you start by chiseling away the shit you know doesn't belong. And then your chiseling gets more and more nuanced until in the end, it's just fine-grained adjustments uh, oh, yeah. until you get to, to, to what you want. Now, you know this because you're, you're a master of that kind of stuff. But, but actually, I, I love that, though, because it, but it does, it does talk to the, the, the need to be cold in the moment. Uh, because, if, because if you're talking to somebody about what they need to do, generally it's quite transactional. And generally people go, yeah, okay, that's great. I provide it's provided me with some clarity, but if you're if you're challenging or questioning how they work, you're questioning almost their behaviours and who they are becomes a motive, and that's the sort of the distant di- difference between this the sort of statue versus the the organism that that people Absolutely. pull back because it creates that emotional distress whether you're delivering it or you're receiving it. You're absolutely right. And also what's what's kind of inherent in that story is the fact that you need a vision to start with. You need to know what you're going for, even though you might not have absolutely every single, you know, detail in your head. You need to have a rough kind of grid reference, a rough guide as to what you're approximating when you start. And that's why vision is really important in leadership. Okay. You, you, you can't, you know, if you don't know what yeah. you're chiseling, you can't chisel it out. Um, okay. So, so, but that, but that vision, that purpose guiding decision-making, but also um, allowing you permission to do some things that might be uncomfortable. Correct. Because chiseling out, well, by the time you've chiseled out and you've got your, you know, your perfect, you know, you know, statue of a horse there, everyone's looking at that. But in order to get that, you've had to chisel away a load of rubble, which is on the floor. Now, actually, if you are chiseling, you know, a team, you're going to have a load of rubble on the floor and you can't be sentimental. Just as a just as a sculpt, it sounds very cold and callous, Steve, but I hope you know and I hope you listen to what I'm saying. You know, if you're chiseling, if you are a sculptor and you're chiseling out rock, you can't be sentimental about the rock that you're chiseling out and leaving on the floor. It's the same as if you're chiseling out and trying to put together a great team. You know, you've got to chisel out a lot of rock that's going to go on the floor. And the, the difference here is that that rock is going to be people and associated with those people mm. are going to be people's aspirations and dreams. Um, and, you know, you, you, you can't afford to be sentimental about that. You've got to be able to take those tough decisions. And then that comes back to, um, you know, the psychopathy that we were talking about earlier in the right context, in the right combination, at the right level and with the right intentions those characteristics are good. But if you're using that hammer and chisel to, you know, create vandalism, for instance, that's not good. If you're defacing another statue or, you know, whatever, then that's where, that you know, still the same hammer and chisel, but you're not using it to good effect. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to go and get my little test. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, look, I need to, I need to find out whether my aquarium interest yeah. is... Is you do so. You're just going to have to pause that take for a minute, yeah. and I'll go and I'll go and get this, and we'll do this for you and your listeners, mate. Right here we go. Now, this is first of all, Steve. I will say now to you and your listeners. Okay, I'm not diagnosing you here. All right. Okay, I'm this not, is I not official. Suing, I don't want anyone suing you or me. Um, <laughs> Can I have my money back? He's now a psychopath. 
<laughs> exactly right. You can't do that. But what this is, it's a very simple little test, and it's okay. it is accurate. Okay, it's a psychometric validated test, and it is very accurate. Um, and it just what it does, it just gives you a rough indication of where you are on the psychopathic spectrum. Okay, so the way it's going to work. I'm nervous like, now. That's probably a sign that I'm not <laughs> low levels well, of anxiety. Do you know what? I often get email. You just took the words out. Like, I often get emails from people saying, I'm really worried I might be a psycho. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the just, third word indicates where you are. Yeah. I've got that kind of, you know, that like little kind of set response that you were talking about earlier. I've just got this. I've just copied in. You are not a psychopath if you're anxious that you are going to be a psychopath. Yeah. Yes. Sorry. Hang on a minute. I'm, I need to, to switch off cold. I don't care whether I'm a psychopath. I'm, I'm, try, exactly. I'm trying this out. That's better. So what you need, you've got a pen and paper. So listeners yep. will need a paper. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read you out 11 very simple statements, okay? And these statements all hypothetically describe you as a person, okay? And what you're going to do, you're going to score each statement according to how accurate a description you think it is of you, and you're going to use the following scoring key, okay? okay? So if you strongly disagree, strongly disagree that the statement describes you, give yourself zero points, one point if you disagree, two if you agree, and three if you strongly agree, okay? okay. So you've got a four-point scale, zero strongly disagree, one disagree, two agree, and three strongly agree. And we're going to go, I'll read them out to you. Shall I, shall I tell you my answers as I go? Well, I, I wouldn't if I were you, because I'll, for a reason that will become very obvious in a minute. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, you can if you want. You can if you want. All right, but, uh, all right, but you'll right. see. Okay. I wouldn't, let's go get over the first two first. Right. And you might re- reconsider. <laughs> number one. Number one, I rarely plan ahead. I'm a spur of the moment kind of person. I rarely plan ahead. I'm a spur of the moment kind of person. Now, needless to say, folks. And you, Mr. Ingham, you need to be very honest here. Otherwise, you're only cheating yourself. Okay, number one. Number two, cheating on your partner is okay as long as you don't get caught. There you go, Steve. You can be honest about that one if you want to. I told you. I saved you, saved you from yourself there, mate. But, um, I'm, although I'm sure you're I'm, I completely disagree. Completely disagree. <laughs> number three, if something better comes along, it's okay to cancel a long-standing appointment. If something better comes along, it's okay to cancel a long-standing appointment. Number four, seeing an animal injured or in pain doesn't bother me in the slightest. Number five, driving fast cars, riding roller coasters and skydiving appeal to me. Uh, Number six, doesn't matter to me if I have to step on other people to get what I want. Uh, Number seven, I'm very persuasive. I have a talent for getting other people to do what I want. Okay. Number eight, I'd be good in a dangerous job because I can make my mind up quickly. Don't think too long about that one. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Number nine, I find it easy to keep it together when others are cracking under pressure. Number 10, If you're able to con someone, um, well, uh, they deserve it. That's their problem. Okay. Uh, and number 11, the last one. Most of the time when things go wrong, it's someone else's fault, not mine. Most of the time when things go wrong, it's someone else's fault, not mine. Certain 
US president of recent times would have scored very highly on that particular one. Blame externalization. That's called that final one. Now, what I want you to do, tot up your numbers, and you should come to a final total. Okay. Right? Now, don't say it out loud. What I'm going to do now is I'm going to read out what the uh, what the scoring, what the bands are, and what they mean. Very good. All right. If you score zero to either, don't say we'll have your score in a minute. If you, I'll just read them out first. Zero to eleven, folks, you are low on the psychopathic spectrum. If you scored zero to eleven, you are low. If you score twelve to seventeen, you are below average. If you scored eighteen to twenty-two, you are average. You can feel the tension rising, can't you? <laughs> if you score twenty-three to twenty-eight, you are high. And if you score 29 to 33, you are very high. And when you do this live in an auditorium, Steve, that's the point where you get people turning around because no one wants that bloke sitting behind Yeah, them. what's the probabilities of, of somebody being very high? Oh, really, really quite. It's, it's about 1%, less than 1%, really, really high. Um, if you're really answering honestly, it's less, less than pure psychopaths, less than 1%. But, um, but actually in this probably, because we're not actually testing real pure forensic psychopathy here we're testing personality traits so here it'd probably be about five percent or something like that i haven't actually done the psychometrics on mm. it but i'd be about five percent i would imagine um right go on then mr Ian, what do you get i've got 11 11 you are you are actually in the low, the low. you are you are the top of the low and you, I can see from your face, mate, you have never been so pleased to do badly what, on a test. What's, what's, well, now I want to know what I am as opposed to you're not that. What, what's the opposite of a psychopath? The opposite? Yeah, there's very little <laughs> research on it. I call them empaths. Empaths? I call them empaths. Empath. I just make that term up. Yeah, I think, I think the term exists, but like, you know, people who are, you know, absolutely feel everyone else's pain and whatever, whatever. But you can't be, you know, it's all about context, isn't it? Because you worked in some high pressure situations. And I know for a fact, well, I know that if I was, you would definitely be in my team in terms of personality, right? If we were to, if we were just having a team to do with personalities, for instance, we had to go and win a big competition or something. If you're just picking people on terms, I don't know what we'd be trying to win, but if we're trying to pick people on personality, you'd definitely be in my starting 15, you know, because you see you're, you're very focused, you're very controlled, you're very attention to detail oriented. Um, so yeah, you know, I think, yeah, maybe I know I'm, I'm slightly more extroverted and and I'm, I'm lower on agreeableness, but I've also, because I've led teams, big teams, um, I've recognized that if I don't understand and connect with other people that I suppose that is that, that alignment of we succeed together and understanding that there's value in that and, and, and seeing that perspective. So what did you, what did you have? I'll ask you one. What did you have for um, nine, uh, eight, nine? I'd be good in a dangerous job because I can make my mind up quickly. That's number eight. What did you have for that? I had one. <clears throat> one so for that. Dis- okay. So disagree. Disagree. Number nine, I find it easy to keep it together when others are cracking under pressure. What did you have for that? Two. So agree. So you agree. So you're you're pretty good under pressure. Yeah. So that's that's okay. Yeah. So that that matches with what you've what you've kind of done because mm. if you know you get games with an athlete or something, you know, and you've you've got to be detached. You've got to more more cracking. You've got to at least put an act on, even if you're even if you're even if you are melting down. <laughs> yeah, I think it really helps to to have a, a focus or a mantra or an image that you embody 
in those situations because because your mind is so wired it's so noisy it's so quite paranoid about the outcome or what people think that you have to have a simple focus that gives you clarity and and that you have that ability to pull away from the distractions to to the to the job in hand Absolutely. And that exactly comes down to what we talked about actually earlier on, simple mantras. And that's that's a really, really simple, practical take home, you know, message that the listeners can come up with. And it's really important. Come up with a mantra that works for you. Doesn't don't do not come up with for a mantra that you think sounds good. Okay. Come up with a mantra that works for you. You don't have to share it with anybody. Just one thing that you carry deep inside your brain that, that you can work. And, you know, if you if you go out for your runs, what's going to help you get up those hills when you're feeling tired? What do you come back to? What are you, what are you zoning on? And um, uh, as I say, those things can help you in everyday life. Mantra is really, really important because, you know, when, when the shit's hitting the fan, you don't have time for complicated instructions. It's the same with special forces. You know, if you go into, you know, you're storming an embassy or something and all kinds of stuff's happening, you can't listen to complicated instructions about this. It's literally one or two words, if that. So, you know, that's really important in everyday life as well. So Mm. um, hopefully a few tips there, mate. Mate, it's been so interesting. Um, It's been great. It's 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 fascinating. Well, you're always fascinating, but learning from a field that is so far away from what I do, but so close do you know what I mean? In well, the sense it's that it's really funny, isn't it? Well, it's a bit like I've often thought about it. it I've often thought about you and me as a bit like the Bering Strait, <laughs> separating like Russia and America. It's kind of like, yeah, actually, people think that Russia and America are completely separate countries, continents, even. Even, but you know, if they pe- very few people think that if they played each other in ice hockey, it's actually a local derby. Yeah, <laughs> because if you go around the other side of the world, it's like what fifty miles separate. If that separating, you know, the tip of Alaska from the tip of of, of Siberia. So actually, when you think about yeah, our particular disciplines. It's tempting to think, like you and you put it really well. It's tempting to think that these are completely different continents on the other side of the world. But actually, and they are to some extent. But if you just spin the globe round and you look at the other side, actually, you find that you know they're just looking across a, a, a very very small strait at each other. And I think we should spend way more time around that side of the globe, mate, than we should, you know, around the uh, around around the normal side. I think. Yeah, well, except for the fact that I've I've now broken the model because I'm a non-psychopathic fish keeper. Well, that's true. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, no one's ever going to That's, that's polar. That is, I'm I'm messed up there. There's no there's no model that my credibility that. is destroyed now, Steve. So <laughs> let me go right at the end. Of that, I have to cut that bit, mate. But um, I thought that was just absolutely wonderful, mate. I really enjoyed that. Hopefully, hopefully you didn't. You'll be able to get some sense out of it anyway. No, but, thank uh, you so much, Kevin. Thank you. So how did you get on with the psychopath evaluation? Well, actually, I'm not sure I need to know, but I hope it was interesting for you. Check out Kevin's books, The Wisdom of Psychopaths, Flipnosis, The Good Psychopath's Guide to Success, and his recent book, Black and White Thinking. They're superb. And give him a follow on Twitter at the real Dr. Kev, not least because Kev is hatching a performance of his own later in this year, which I'm helping him with. So watch this space. You can also follow me on Twitter at Ingham underscore Steve at support underscore champs and follow us on LinkedIn and Instagram. Look up supporting champions. And finally, if you're looking for some coaching support or some virtual team development to help support you go to the next level 
in work, life or sport, then take a look at supportingchampions.co.uk forward slash coaching hyphen mentoring and drop us a line at inquiries at supportingchampions.co.uk to find out which package is right for you.